So I know for those of you that are here, we did, we over the last couple of weeks when I was on the road, we did some uh, pre-recorded stuff from uh, the Olivet Discourse, uh, but I want to go back and just kind of rehash some of that live with you and make sure you don't have, see if you have any questions and feel free to raise your hand at any time if you do have questions. Uh, but since it's been a while since we actually did a, a What Lies Ahead study in person because we had the snow uh, that canceled services, I was on the road for two weeks, so it's been a while. Let me start with just a quick uh, reminder of kind of where we are in the series. We started this several weeks ago. This is session 15, actually, and we're in the midst of... Oh, thank you. Yeah, I forgot to flip it over. So let's make sure we're still good. Yeah, there we go. So we're in the midst of a uh, section of this uh, study where we're looking at what Jesus had to say about uh, the end times, and uh, that is found in the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Olivet Discourse, as you know by now, is in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke uh, 21, and Mark 13, but we're focusing primarily on Matthew's account. We have a chapter dedicated to the Olivet Discourse in my book, What Lies Ahead, and uh, I know most of you by now that are here already have that, but in case we have any guests with us, there are copies available on the back resource table, and those that are watching online, either by streaming or later watching the video, you can get that at notbyworks.org at the online store. But the Olivet Discourse is that message that Jesus preached uh, the night before he was betrayed in the garden. So it's Wednesday of Passion Week, and he's, uh, he's already kind of uh, uh, cursed the temple, overthrown the tables of the money changers. He's cre creating quite a stir, and the disciples are becoming concerned because, as we've talked about, they thought that the kingdom, the long-awaited Messianic kingdom, would arrive immediately. And they're beginning to see that something's not right, because even though he had told them again and again, particularly during the last year of his earthly ministry, that he would have to go to the cross first to pay for the sins of the world before he could resurrect, defeat death, hell, and the grave, and then come back someday to inaugurate the kingdom, even though he had told them that time and again, they still were quite not putting the pieces together. And so they thought the kingdom was going to come right then. Uh, tensions are heating up, and of course, within hours, he would be arrested, tried, crucified, laid in the tomb, and then, of course, we know resurrected, uh, which we just celebrated uh, on that great uh, resurrection morning on Sunday. So it's the Olivet Discourse because he preached this message atop the Mount of Olives. The disciples asked the question, well, when will your kingdom come then? If it's not going to come now, what will be the sign of your coming? It's very important, as we've talked about, to recognize that this entire message uh, is taking place uh, before the church age. The church is still not even on the radar. It has not been revealed. It hasn't been unveiled. It certainly hasn't been born. We find out later in the book of Acts, if you piece together Scripture with Scripture, that the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 constitutes the birthday of the church. This, of course, is all happening weeks before that. It's in a Jewish context, as we've talked about several weeks ago. Uh, so he's talking about the Jewish Messiah, the coming Jewish kingdom, where Jesus would reign in Jerusalem, the capital city of Jerusalem, in the rebuilt temple, on the long-awaited throne of David. So this is sort of what lies ahead 
uh, from the context of the Olivet Discourse. Now, as I said, the underlying premise here is that this is wholly Jewish. It's very tempting to read into this passage uh, elements of the church. Some of it, for example, lends itself to sounding like the rapture. We're going to get to those passages in the coming weeks. Uh, but it's not the rapture. The church has not been revealed yet, and certainly the rapture has not been revealed yet. Uh, the first inkling that we have anywhere on earth uh, from the, the heart of God, the mind of God, as he unveils himself to mankind of the rapture is not until the next night. On Thursday night in the upper room, just before he actually goes to the garden and is betrayed, when he tells the disciples that he would go away, and if he goes away, he will come again to receive us where he is, a clear reference to the rapture. Um, and then as in the unveiling of God's revelation and the progress of revelation, we begin to learn more about the rapture, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians 2, and several other passages. So if we put this in context, this is a chart we've come back to again and again. The Olivet Discourse deals with this one seven-year period. We talked several weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and watch that video if you were not here for that, about Daniel's 70th week or that 490-year plan that God unveils uh, through Daniel. And um, that's really the key to understanding all of God's end times prophecy. And so this teaching from atop the Mount of Olives is laser-focused on that seven-year period. And that's a key period because it occupies a great deal of real estate in the Word of God, even though uh, in terms of number of years, it's actually relatively small. I mean, as we've said, 16% of the Bible, roughly speaking, uh, is unfulfilled prophecy related to future things, what we call eschatology. 16%. And that includes things like the 1,000-year earthly reign of Christ on the old earth, the eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. It includes things like the battle of Gog and Magog, of course the rapture, which is the next great prophetic event that starts the clock ticking on that final 16% of the Bible that will be fulfilled. It includes all kinds of information and future things, but as far as the biblical record is concerned, a great deal of attention is given to that seven-year period. And the entire Olivet Discourse relates to the seven years preceding Christ's return and then Christ's return uh, in earnest. So if we kind of overlay using the Olivet Discourse and the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, overlay the passages of the Olivet Discourse on top of this end times chart, it would look like this. Of course, I said it's not related to the church age. The first 14 verses, which I know you've looked at over the last couple of weeks while I was gone in a pre-recorded video, but we're going to come back to that today, uh, deal with the entire seven-year period. It constitutes general signs leading up to the return of Christ. So again, remember the context. Context is so critical for understanding any meaning of any language, but particularly scripture. The disciples want to know what will be the sign of your coming. What will be the sign of your return to establish this long-awaited promised kingdom that was promised to Abraham and to David and reiterated through all of the prophets? What will be the sign of that coming? Not what will be the sign of the rapture. Rapture didn't exist as far as they knew at that point. Obviously, it's part of God's eternal plan, but it hadn't been revealed yet. So what will be the sign of your coming? In the first 14 verses, 
constitute general signs, things that will be characteristic on earth just prior to the long-awaited return of Christ. Then we're just looking at Matthew's uh, outline, and, and you see the other uh, gospel writers' uh, parallel passages there, but we're looking at Matthew. There, beginning in verse 15 to all the way to 26, we're dealing with very specific signs related to the return of Christ, more detailed signs, particularly the last three and a half years, starting with the abomination of desolation. And then in verses 27 to 31, you have the actual return of Christ, and it's described beautifully in this passage, and, uh, and it talks about what it'll look like. The sign of the Son of Man will appear. You know, he will gather the nation of Israel from the four corners of the earth, regather them into the land supernaturally. All of those things will happen at the moment of his return. And then as we shall see as we go through this over the coming weeks, following that, you know, he's, he's kind of given them the, the, es- the answer explicitly of, of their question, what will be the sign of your coming? Well, here's some general signs. Here's specific signs. Here's what it's going to look like when I split the eastern sky and come back. Then the rest of the sermon is all practical application. You know, Jesus is a master teacher, obviously. He's God in the flesh. And so he does a great job of always kind of explaining biblical truth. In this case, explaining the Old Testament prophets. He even quotes Daniel by name. But then applying it, answering the so what question. And so... In light of that, he gives several watchfulness passages, watchfulness parables, and goes through things like the ten virgins and the parable of the talents and then the sheep and the goats. And he uses these metaphors to essentially motivate the nation of Israel to receive her king. That it ended up in the mind of God and God's prophetic plan being so far 2,000 years between his promise and his explanation of his coming and the fulfillment of it, which hasn't happened yet, is irrelevant. I mean, think about it. From the, ad, from the perspective of the first advent of Christ, it was hundreds of years between when Isaiah said the virgin shall conceive, and it wasn't until 700 years later till it happened. So it's part and parcel to Bible prophecy that God reveals through prophets, in this case God himself in the flesh revealing, certain uh, uh, uh events that might not happen for quite some time and that's the nature of God's word we, we go all the way back to Genesis 3:15, where uh, God promises that one day the seed of the woman Jesus Christ would destroy the devil once and for all well we're 6,000 years into that and we haven't had it happen yet so God's word is true but a lot of times people who misunderstand the Olivet Discourse and think it relates to the present church age will say, well, why would Jesus tell the disciples something that he knew wasn't going to take place in their lifetime? Well, that's, I'm sorry, but that's a silly question. Every prophet was prophesying to the people in his day of things that might not happen until much later. Sometimes prophets foretold of immediate soon coming things that did in fact occur in the lives of his listeners. Sometimes their prophecies didn't get fulfilled till hundreds of years later, in some cases thousands of years later. That's just normal for prophecy. So it's really irrelevant. Jesus is, is speaking here to the nation of Israel as a whole and the disciples as representatives 
of that nation of Israel, in particular, believing representatives. They wanted to know when this kingdom would come. He had already told the, the first century Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the ones in power that ultimately crucified him in cahoots with Rome, he had already told them that you shall never see me again until you receive me by crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so now he's sort of speaking on the side, if you will, in this moment with his disciples to those who did embrace him, who did believe the gospel, who did believe he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, placed their faith in him, the same way Abraham had you know, millennia earlier, 2,000 years before Christ, when he believed the promise of God. And, uh, and he's explaining to them a little bit more about how this kingdom is going to uh, come. So does that make sense in terms of the context? Any questions about the Jewish context of the Olivet Discourse. Very important that we keep that in mind because otherwise you'll kind of be thrown off a bit. One of the hardest uh, things to do as a student of the Bible is for us to leave our presuppositions behind and come with a blank slate and let the text speak for itself. And there's absolutely no inkling anywhere in the lead up to this in chapter 23 or in the questions and so forth uh, that would lead us to believe he's talking about the present church age. The church age has not been revealed yet. Paul would later in Ephesians 3 call the church age what? A mystery. Now what did we say a mystery was? I know it's been a while. You've slept since then. So anybody remember how we defined the biblical term mystery? Yeah. Something not previously revealed. Perfect, yeah. Previously unrevealed information. Something previously not revealed. So it doesn't mean something hard to understand the way we often think of a mystery. Uh, it's in, in, in Greek, mysterion just means new revelation, something previously unveiled. And so Paul very clearly describes both the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15 and the church as a mystery. Now it wasn't new to God. God has had this. God is eternal. He's timeless. He never changes. He never adds to or takes away from. So this was God's plan in eternity past. But from our human perspective of time, space, and matter, it was just now being unveiled, the church. That happens later. We're still in the days of Israel and the sort of the Old Testament era, if you, if you will. So we talked about, in the outline of the Olivet Discourse, first of all, the disciples' misplaced focus. I want to go through this fairly fast because it's review, and then we'll get to more of the text. I'd like to try to get through all 14 verses if we can this morning. So then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And this is after he had kind of cursed the leaders and said, you're not, you know, you shall, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings as a chicken gathers her chicks under the wings. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, but you were not willing, right? So you will not see me again till you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he's just done that. And his disciples come up to him and, the, and they show the buildings of the temple. In other words, I mentioned before, they're getting nervous. They're, they're like, wow, he's going to be taking the throne there and throwing off Herod and, and just becoming the fulfillment of all of God's promises and, 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 and destroying Rome and so forth, rescuing Israel from the shackles of Rome. And yet he's saying, you know, he doesn't sound like something's not right. So they're sort of pointing out the temple. Isn't this great, Lord? And, of course, Jesus says, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Uh, now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Oh, I'm sorry, this is 
this is the passage in Luke that we've talked about, the parable of delay, I call it, the parable of the minas, where Luke tells us, again, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, so we know this is exactly what was in the mind of the disciples, that they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So Jesus is trying to kind of get it through their thick skull. No, not yet. Wait. Be patient. You know, it's going to come. The king is going to go away for a while. He's going to come back, and when he does, he'll inaugurate the kingdom, but not yet. So then, after Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another, the disciples, almost in an ecstatic utterance, you get the impression, uh, they say, tell us then, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And, um, and so Jesus begins uh, to answer that question with verse 4, general signs about the tribulation. So if you look at our overlay that we looked at earlier, we're right here in this section for the next 14 verses. First of all, he says, take heed that no one deceives you. It's interesting that, and I've talked about this elsewhere, that the, the concept of deception is so prominent in the Olivet Discourse. It begins, the very first words out of his mouth are, don't be deceived. And he reiterates that again and again, because as we have said, deception is getting worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. And it's going to reach unprecedented heights during this final seven-year period. So much so that Jesus tells us if it were possible, even the elect would be deceived. And so he says, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will uh, deceive uh, many. And I'm going to skip ahead here again, just trying to stay within the text for the sake of uh, time. He says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now, uh, here's where people begin to try to go to the newspaper and current events and geopolitical events and say, oh, this is that. You know, we're seeing wars and rumors of wars. This must be the fulfillment of that prophecy. But again, what's the context? And you know, there have always been wars. You, know, you could go back into ancient times and there have been wars. So don't make the mistake of starting with the newspaper or the headlines and then going to the Bible. Stick with the Bible. And what Jesus is saying is that once this seven-year period starts, and again, he's about to refer to Daniel in just a few verses by name, so we know the seven years that he's talking about. Once that starts, chaos is going to ensue. And there are going to be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars. I'll come back to that in a moment, and I'll show you where I think that fits in God's prophetic time. But he says, don't panic, the end is not yet. Um, so remember, they, their question had been, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So in terms of going from one age to the next, you know, we're in the church age, they're not in the church age yet, but that's the final age. They want to know when will the kingdom come. The end of the age is basically saying, we want the kingdom to be inaugurated. Whatever age we're in now, we want it to end and we want to go into the kingdom of peace and righteousness and justice when the King of kings and Lord of lords rules with a rod of iron in perfect peace and justice. We want to know when this messianic kingdom that we've looked forward to for so long and generations and generations have looked forward to, that our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents look forward to, when is that going to come? And so he's answering their question. He says, so when you see these wars and rumors of wars, the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. 
Now that phrase, the last one there in yellow, beginning of sorrows, is literally birth pains. And the phrase birth pains is an Old Testament passage, an inherently Jewish phrase, inherently Jewish phrase that describes the period of distress preceding the Messianic age, the tribulation. It's used by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah. It's very common. Paul actually picks up on it in 1 Thessalonians 5. So the beginning of sorrows is the sort of the, the metaphor is a good one, the birth pangs that occur right before the event. So if you use a pregnancy as the metaphor, um, you know, a, a, a woman is pregnant and they know approximately nine months later the birth is going to happen in a normal situation, right? And obviously there are a lot of things happening during that nine months to indicate something's coming, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about. There's all kinds of things happening. And that's the beginning of them. But when those birth pangs start, it's going to be soon. And so in the grand scheme of history, this final seven-year period is the beginning of those birth pangs. Now, I'm sure any woman who's given birth will tell you they're glad the birth pangs don't last seven years. <laughs> but in the prophetically speaking, they do. It's the seven years preceding the coming of Christ. So uh, in the book, What Lies Ahead, I have a detailed outline. I'm just going to give you a few pieces of the puzzle here. Uh, this is from the appendix at the back of the book. But as we think about that 16% of Bible prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled, um, it, the, the next great prophetic event that starts the clock ticking is the rapture. So that's number one and should be number one on anyone's list. And then in heaven we see the judgment seat of Christ for believers of the church age and the marriage of the Lamb. And then on earth... <clears throat> Uh, as I understand and piece together Daniel 11 and so forth, we see the formation of a Western alliance led who, by who I believe is the future Antichrist that invades Egypt, Daniel chapter 11. And they're threatening Israel. And then we see the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So the battle of Gog and Magog, although many uh, Bible teachers will actually put it all over the map, but <clears throat> you know prophetically... And the Bible doesn't, to be fair, doesn't explicitly tell us when it will be. Uh, some people put it before the rapture. But as I said, if you have any prophecy fulfilled before the rapture, it creates an issue for the doctrine of imminency, which we've talked about previously, which is a very clearly taught uh, Bible prophecy. What does imminency mean? What did we say imminency means? Anybody remember? Yeah. It could happen at any time. Excellent could happen at any time. I need to go away more often because you guys are just Boom. rattling off perfect answers, you know. Uh, imminency doesn't mean it's going to happen soon. It means it could happen at any time, meaning nothing has to happen before it. So nobody could ever look at world events and say, well, I know the rapture is not going to happen today because A, B, and C haven't happened. Nope, the rapture could have happened yesterday, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, any time in the church age. And so, um, so I believe the battle of Gog and Magog has to happen after the rapture. And I believe it happens between the rapture and the official start of the final seven-year tribulation, Daniel 9, 27, when the, the Antichrist signs that peace treaty. And so let's take a closer look at this battle described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Again, there's a formation of a northern alliance against Israel. Uh, then they invade Israel. We'll come back and look at the actual passage here in a second. Then that Western alliance protests. God, we know from the biblical text in Ezekiel, and it's, it's very descriptive, 
supernaturally intervenes, allowing the Western Alliance to defeat the Northern Alliance. And they take credit for it, even though it was clearly God and it was a miracle. And if you've ever watched the Left Behind movies, uh, by the way, I might mention that in that series, which is an excellent series, the books, uh, uh, Tim LaHaye and, 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 and Jenny, uh, Jenkins, um, and I, I knew Tim LaHaye, have worked with him, talked with him. They put the Battle of Gog and Magog prior to the rapture, but Tim LaHaye did not believe that. He told me himself. So he said that was just rhetorical license, and he kind of deferred to Jenkins on that. But he held the view that I hold, which is that the Battle of Gog, Gog and Magog didn't take place until after the rapture occurred. But in any event, the description, uh, you know, in terms of the uh, visuals in that movie, uh, really, I think, do justice to the biblical account because it shows that you know, planes are just mysteriously dropping out of the sky and there's just clearly a supernatural element to this victory. Yet the Western Alliance sort of stands up and says, look what we did. And as I said, since I believe the Antichrist is the one who's leading that alliance, he's not the Antichrist at that time, but he becomes it, it kind of propels him to world fame, gives him the notoriety that he needs, and then that propels him into signing and, and orchestrating this peace treaty, which then, of course, designates him as the Antichrist and starts the clock ticking on that final seven-year period. So the key passage here is at the start of Ezekiel 38 is this, in verse 2, Son of man, set your face against Gog, which is the name of the ruler from the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, Tubal, and prophesy against him. And then he goes on, Persia, Ethiopia, and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all its troops and the house of Togarma from the far north. Now, names of countries change through the years, right? They change more rapidly now even. Um, so if we go back and put these geographic countries in context today, Persia would be Iran. Ethiopia is Sudan, Put is modern-day Libya, Gomer is Turkey, and Togarma is Syria. Now, look at those five countries across the bottom of the screen. Um, do, they, do any of them sound familiar? <laughs> they should, because they've been in the news a lot lately. Um, and this is just, again the setting of the stage for things that are going to happen with the Battle of Gog and Magog, when all of these nations work together to try to seize uh, the moment. Um, in God's plan of the ages, that land over there is truly the holy land. Uh, one of the chapters in What Lies Ahead deals with that land promise, and it, I show you again and again how it is called my land, my land, my land, capital M, God's land. It's holy. It's special. In fact, to this day, three world religions consider it their key piece of real estate. Uh, hard to understand uh, because it, you know, you think of all the beautiful places on the earth. If I was going to pick a place to be my land, I mean, I'd pick, you know, southeastern Alaska or maybe northern Idaho or maybe Glacier National Forest, something like that. But this is God's land. And so it should not surprise us then, after the rapture and the chaos that ensues, that pagan nations would seek to, to take advantage of that chaos 
and try to seize that land. And for whatever motivations and reasons. Uh, that's the reason, by the way, for 6,000 years now, there's been upheaval after upheaval after upheaval there. Someone emailed me this week, not from the church, but from, uh, I guess, from a Not By Works contact or YouTube contact or something, and asked me if I thought that some of the recent goings-on over there in terms of treaties between Israel and some of the other nations uh, were prophetically significant. And I just said, well, we'll know after the rapture. We can always look back in hindsight and kind of see how the pieces came together. But it's my view that until the Prince of Peace himself takes the throne, there's not going to be peace in the Middle East. There's not going to be peace in the land. Um, and so, you know, uh, as we look at what's going on around us today, two of the prominent nations mentioned in Ezekiel's prophecy of Gog and Magog, Russia and Iran, are getting pretty chummy. And so, again, we, this is not fulfilling of prophecy. It's just the setting of the stage. Could this mean that we're getting close um, and, and things are kind of moving into place, and, and at any moment the Lord may call us to meet him in the air? I hope so. I hope that's what that means, but we can't say with certainty. Back to the text, verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all name, the nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. So again, Jesus is just following right along with the other biblical teaching on the tribulation from Daniel and from Revelation. And what do we know from Revelation takes place at the second half as we move through the seven uh, years uh, of the tribulation? Well, the Antichrist begins to persecute Christians. The first three and a half years are relative peace. I mean, it's chaos because the judgments of God are being poured out. The judgment of Satan is being poured out. There's all kinds of cosmic struggle and wrath. But in terms of direct, intentional, you know, declared persecution, the Antichrist hasn't done that yet. But boy, he breaks that treaty at the midpoint, sets himself up as God, demands that everybody worship him as God, as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2. And then it's, it's an intense uh, tribulation. And then he says, Then many false prophets will rise and deceive many. Another reference to deception. Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Um, love will grow cold because it's a time of unprecedented deception. Nobody will know who they can trust, right? Uh, it's hard to love people if you don't know if you can trust them or not. And then he concludes this first section with the phrase, He who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Well, as I said, verses 4 to 14 are sort of a summary statement. Now, this verse 13 has really puzzled people and led to a lot of bad, bad, bad theology because in English, it, it, it sort of sounds like in order to get into heaven and to gain eternal life, you've got to persevere, you've got to endure. Well, first of all, uh, that would be contrary to the entire teaching of Scripture that says our salvation is not by works, not contingent upon our behavior. It is wholly a work of grace received for free by faith. In fact, the book of Revelation ends with that wonderful invitation, whosoever will let him drink of the water of life, what? Freely. Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely by his grace. If our entrance into heaven depended upon our ability to hang on and work hard and persevere and do good works, then Jesus didn't have to die and shed his blood. But he did have to die and shed his blood because there's nothing we can do that can secure our forgiveness and eternal life. So 
this problem is easily dealt with when people remember the Bible was not written in English. It was written in the New Testament anyway in Greek. And the word saved, which we've talked about before, we've talked about it in our Wednesday night study, is the word sozo, which just means to deliver or rescue or keep from harm. And I think I went through this in one of the pre-recorded videos that you watched, but it bears repeating. This word sozo is used 107 times in uh, the New Testament. And again, it just means deliver, rescue, or save. The noun form soteria means deliverance or salvation. And like all words, it has to be defined in context. So as I've broken this down, and elsewhere I've separated out all 107 references where salvation occurs in the Bible, uh, the word, the noun, I mean the verb form, into different categories. Uh, but here I'm just going to break it down into two to keep it simple. 71 of those 107 uses of sozo refer to temporal deliverance, not eternal they have nothing to do with heaven or hell. It's deliverance from physical harm, from sickness, from danger, or a dangerous situation. Only 36 times does it refer to eternal deliverance in heaven. In other words, two out of every three times you see the word save in the Bible, you should think physical deliverance, nothing to do with eternal life. If you'll just kind of ingrain that in your head, it'll help you avoid errors because the English words save and salvation are not technical terms that refer to individual eternal salvation. Context always determines meaning. Let me give you some examples. Uh, in Matthew 8 when the Lord and the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and the storm arose and Jesus was asleep, the Lord, the disciples went to the Lord and said, Lord, save us, we are perishing. That's sozo. They did not mean, Lord, give us eternal life, we're going to hell. They just meant, hey, we're in danger physically, rescue us. Or in Mark chapter 5, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her that she may be healed. Now you'd never know from reading an English Bible, this is the New King James, uh, that that word healed is the same exact word originally when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Spirit. Sozo, healed, means saved, delivered. Deliver her from this sickness. Uh, his disciple says, Lord, if he sleeps, that is, if he dies, and sleeps is a euphemism for death, he will get well, talking about Lazarus. Again, get well is the same word, sozo. Or we could go to Acts 27, when Paul was on the boat and uh, they ended up being shipwrecked on the island of Malta, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be lost was finally given up. This is Luke, the narrator, in Acts 27 speaking. So are we to assume that Luke was afraid he was going to end up in hell? No, he's saying all hope that we would be rescued from this terrible storm, we were, we were giving up. Same thing, same context. Unless these, this would create quite an interesting requirement for entrance into heaven. Uh, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. <laughs> now he's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about physical deliverance. So when you see the words save or salvation in your English Bible, always ask save from what? Now let's go back to the Olivet Discourse. He who endures to the end shall be delivered. Delivered from what? Delivered out of the chaos and persecution and terroristic activities of the Antichrist and his regime and the false prophet. Delivered out of that into the kingdom. The ones who survive, the word endures means lasts. So if, you, if you're still alive at the end of the seven-year tribulation, in other words, after the rapture, 
there will be no believers on earth for a time, but then the 144,000 Jewish missionaries go out and preach the gospel. And as Jesus said in this same passage, the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached to all the world. So many people will come to faith. Many people will become eternally saved, a child of God. And some of those, many of them will be martyred. They'll make the ultimate sacrifice. But some of them will endure to the end and be delivered into the kingdom. Uh, so we have to compare Scripture with Scripture, and it would be absolutely violate hundreds, literally, of passages from Genesis to Revelation that indicate salvation is not based upon our ability to endure, but rather the gift of God by uh, grace. So Matthew 24, 4-14 provides general signs that relate to the entire future seven-year tribulation. Again, it's that section that you see right there kind of overlaying it uh, you know, on the outline there. Now, before we close and open it up to questions here, I just want to show you some fascinating parallels between primarily these first 14 verses, although it's, it also includes, picks up some of what Jesus says in the next section, which we'll get to next time, uh, and the book of Revelation in the seal judgments. Remember, the book of Revelation, chapters 6 to 18, the bulk of the book, deal exclusively with this seven-year tribulation, with a few little interludes mixed in there, but that's the, that's the outline of Revelation. And so, since Jesus is talking about the same time period, it's not surprising that we see some parallels. For example, in the Olivet Discourse, the first thing Jesus talks about is false Christs. Well, the very first horseman on the apocalypse, the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6, is the Antichrist, the great deceiver himself, the father of lies, Jesus Christ. Uh, I mean, the father of lies, Satan, who indwells the Antichrist, is what I'm trying to say. Then the second thing Jesus talks about is wars. Remember that? Wars and rumors of wars? Well, the second rider on the horse is the people killing one another and bringing death and war. Then you see Jesus talk about famine. Go to Revelation 6. We see the next judgment is the scarcity of food. Uh, then you see death. You know, the, the uh, thing, what Jesus talks about, they'll deliver you up and you'll be killed. Well, the next judgment is one quarter of the population dies during the tribulation. Um, reference to martyrdom in the Olivet Discourse. Then you see the reference, the next judgment is the martyrs in heaven crying out for justice. And then you see at the actual return, again, at the end of verse 14, Jesus says, then the end will come, and he's going to go on in detail in the next section and describe what that looks like and the signs immediately preceding it. But Revelation <coughs> talks about these cosmic signs and disturbances as well. Lightning from the east to the west and all of these things. Stars falling from heaven and so forth. And great earthquakes. Uh, so we'll kind of stop there. I'll put the outline back up. We'll pick up next time with detailed signs about the second half of the tribulation. We've got some time left for questions. And I know some of this is review if you were here watching the pre-recorded stuff. Um, but perhaps in, in doing it in person kind of clarified a few things. Any questions? Yeah. What does it mean by stars falling from heaven? Just literal, you know, uh, meteors and all kinds of stuff from the galaxies, uh, for, you know, from the cosmic realm falling to earth. Remember that this earth is not going to be here forever. In fact, after the millennial portion of Christ's reign, it gets utterly destroyed and recreated. So, Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that the church was still not spoken of. Right. What about the church that Jesus 
uh, refers to when he's speaking to Peter in Matthew 16, that he'll build his church. Yeah, so he, he, he's speaking in the future tense. So that, again, proves the point that the church right. was not in existence. He said, I will, future tense, build my church. I haven't yet, right. but I will. And, he, and in fact, he does in Acts chapter 2. So the word uh, church, ecclesia, just means um, called out ones, and in context it means sort of assembled ones. And so you see the only references to it, uh, and it's translated church in our English Bible, are there, as you said, in Matthew 16 and then again in Matthew 18. But Matthew 18 is really talking about the context of the synagogue, about how to discipline uh, sinning believers, and again, not the church. Now, we can extrapolate principles from that, timeless truths from that, and it follows that if that's a good model for then, it's a good model for now. But the church was not in existence in Matthew 18 when Jesus says, you know, go to your brother, then bring two with you, and then if you're still in here, then tell it to the church. We can't read back into that, you know, 21st century Western ecclesiology because it didn't exist yet. In time, it just means tell it to the assembly. Yeah. Um, is there any any inkling or guidance, or what's your feeling about why during the seven years that the unbelievers are given a second chance, whereas you think about the millenniums of the of people that had lived and not been saved and already died, mm -hmm. you uh, the understanding is that they're just out of those people just out of luck. Yeah. And in the last seven years, these people get a second chance, although they have to pay a price for it. But yeah, so the Bible is very clear that it's appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. So once death happens, physical death, it's done. There's not yeah. like you get a second chance somehow in the afterlife, or you can go to purgatory and climb your way, and none of that. It's done. Um, these people in the tribulation hadn't died yet. So God's long arm of mercy is available to anyone on earth at any time up until death. And at that point, if they die in unbelief, Jesus says, if you die in unbelief, you'll die. If you die in your sins, you'll, you'll, you'll go to hell. You're, you're dying in unbelief. If you don't, the exact phrase is, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So uh, I don't think it's, uh, I don't necessarily see it as a second chance. I mean, every believer has the chance. You know, Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. The gospel is being proclaimed. And Romans 1 and 2 remind us that if you respond to general revelation, God will send special revelation. So God has made himself known to the entire world. The heavens declare the glory of God. The very conscience within man dictates there's a God. Providence dictates there's a God. And if, we, if anyone on earth will respond to that, God will send special revelation that they might hear and believe the gospel but you can't be saved without hearing and believing the gospel faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of god and so uh there are unbelievers who will be alive at the time of the rapture who then after the rapture hear the gospel and believe uh, there are many who won't uh, but deception is going to be so great i think it would be a grave mistake for any unbeliever today any skeptic today who says, ah, all this is craziness, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe what this Hickson guy is saying, uh, to then say in, somehow in the recesses of their mind, however, you know, if all of a sudden millions of people disappear and I begin to see these things happening, well, then I'll take it for real and I'll believe the gospel at that point. Boy, I wouldn't gamble that because if you're deceived today and not believing, it's going to be even harder to overcome deception after the 
you know, during the tribulation. That said, many people will. The, court, the testimony of Scripture is that there will be an incredible amount of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language who believe the gospel and get saved. Yeah? What about, I've heard some competing thoughts on, you know, once the rapture occurs, the Holy Spirit is taken out, but yet we have people who come to Christ during this during after the rapture, during the tribulation. Yeah, so uh, the question is, I forgot to repeat the question for some of these. I hope you can get the context if you're watching it online or in the video later. But, uh, and of course, when I finally remember to repeat it, it's the guy with the loudest booming voice, and it probably did pick it up already. But anyway, uh, his question is about the Holy Spirit. So we want to be very careful with the language that we use. The Holy Spirit is not taken off the earth. The Holy Spirit is God. You know, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as God, He is omnipresent. We cannot go anywhere and not be in the Holy Spirit's presence. What 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us is that the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church specifically is removed. And so, uh, I actually just talked about this in one of my messages in Georgia, is that today in the present church age, the church, the body of Christ, represents a restraining influence on sin. How? Well, it, it, it's, it's often unsung and untold, but in, in maybe in a boardroom somewhere, there might be a Christian member of the board who, when the board is thinking of doing something unethical or inappropriate, they kind of take a stand and say, no, I don't think that's right. Or private conversations where a believer under the conviction of the Holy Spirit is leading in a godly moral way, or political leaders, world leaders, who knows how many times, even in our own country, godly counselors have approached the president at the time and discourage them from doing something wrong or encourage them to do something moral. So the Holy Spirit's work, not the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's work in and through the church is a powerful presence. When the rapture happens, that's gone. That's gone. He's still present, and, and, and obviously he's still leading people to faith, but the, the reference there in 2 Thessalonians 2 is not to the removal of the Holy Spirit, it's the removal to the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit. Good question. Anybody else? We're just about out of time, but we can squeeze one more in if you got it. Anybody? I know I'm competing with the donuts in the lobby. I understand. No problem. All right, well, let's take a break, and for those of you that are streaming, we'll be back a little bit later, about 10.20. We're not able to stream the entire service because of hardware issues, but we are going to stream the message, so look for us to come back on again at about 1020. All right, you're dismissed. Well, how was Charlotte? She wants to know if she's still saved. <laughs> <laughs>